Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 61st episode of the Exploring Antinatalism podcast, a podcast all about the subject of antinatalism created by antinatalists. My name is Amanda Oldfansukanik, formerly known as Forever Wolf Films on YouTube, and today I'm speaking with media producer, scholar, and reluctant writer, co-creator of the Discourse ZA podcast, and co-founder of the Credence Institute, and author of the recent academic paper, Better Never to Have Been in the Wild, a case for weak wildlife antinatalism, Ludwig Rahl. Welcome to the Exploring Antinatalism podcast, Ludwig. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for inviting me on the show. My pleasure. Uh, Ludwig, it's a pleasure to have you with me today to speak about your work, most particularly about what I believe to be your newest essay, Better Never to Have Been in the Wild, A Case for Weak Wildlife Antinatalism, Um, an excellent and important work, I believe, and one that ponders and offers a unique position uh, into one of the the most controversial issues really in all of antinatalism. So excited to get into it uh, with you today. But before we begin, if you don't mind, I just want to ask a few general questions I ask some version of to all my guests, starting with uh, just getting to know you a bit. Who is Ludwig Rahl? Um, yeah, uh, I guess I'm a, I'm a scholar. Um, I'm from Stellenbosch in South Africa. That's where I uh, the I just received my master's in applied ethics from the University of Stellenbosch, and I'm hoping to do my PhD next year. And I'm also a uh, an animal advocate, um, as you've pointed out, I co-founded the Credence Institute, which is an animal advocacy um, research organization um, that um, yeah, tries to advance the interests of animals by promoting and researching um, primarily market-based solutions. Um, I'm not that involved anymore from a day-to-day basis, but as a co-founder, you always get um, sucked back in. Um, but right now, I think, uh, yeah, I am, you know, tr- pursuing a career in academia and uh, occasionally I, I write things for, you know, academic purposes and also for public consumption and um, mainly to do with animal ethics. Excellent. A lot going on. Uh, congratulations, by the way, on your master's and, you know, good at very exciting going into a PhD program. Um, and, the, and the Credence Institute sounds really fascinating. Um, I, I, took, I took a look at the website and you know, really appreciate the work you guys are doing. Um, Ludwig, why are you or are you not an antinatalist? Um, yeah, I hope this doesn't disappoint you, but I'm not an antinatalist. Um, okay. I, um, yeah, I mean, there's um, some practical um, issues I have with it and as well as philosophical. Um, I am, I mean, I find, um, you know, I'm a I'm a big admirer of David Benatar and um, and I find the arguments, um, I mean, I, I, they do make sense um, to a certain degree. And I, I used to be an antinatalist, but um, I think, you know, you, when it comes to some base intuitions, I think there's sometimes a divergence where you can't really reconcile the differences between them. Um, so um, yeah, I don't know if we can get into it immediately, but with, um, you know, Benatar has, a, you know, puts forward a few asymmetries um, as to why he, you know, advocates for antinatalism. The main one, um, or one of the main ones is there's just a surplus of negative experiences throughout one's life. And um, I mean, that's, I mean, that's one I'm sympathetic towards. 
and then the there's this other asymmetry that he proposes, which um, uh, you can sort of picture this two two by two matrix where you know the presence of good is good, which makes sense, and then the presence of bad is bad, and then the absence of bad is good, but the absence of good is not bad, and um, yeah, I think that's you know, intuitively appealing to some. And uh, I actually just once had a friend point out to me that, um, you know, maybe the absence of pleasure is in fact bad. And I, yeah, I don't know. I've sort of uh, adopted that view. Um, so, um, you know, I don't know. I can just imagine myself, you know, walking um, through a neighborhood and there's maybe, you know, a park with, um, I don't know, you know, swings and slides, and then there's no one, um, you know, making use of it. And that would be, in a sense, just an absence of pleasure. And according to the strong antinatalist view, this is not a bad situation because no one is actually being deprived of that fun because there's no one there. But um, I don't know, I would look at that and, and I would lament the fact that no one is, um, you know, having fun there no one is um um taking pleasure in what could be uh so yeah that's sort of my philosophical um difference and then there's the uh, practical difference which is um as far as i'm aware you don't endorse this view but there is you know the um the human-centric antinatalist view that you know humans should go extinct and let let um, nature and wild animals inherit the earth. Uh, I know, I think this is not your position, but that it is, is a common position, yeah. which, um, yeah, as my as I tried to lay out in my thesis, uh, which we'll probably get into, um, you know, the idea of humans going extinct and letting uh, wildlife um, roam the earth is probably a world which contains just as much suffering, if not more so. Um, so for practical reasons, I think, you know, humans should stick around because we are also one of the um, only ones that can maybe, you know, um, reduce suffering, maybe one day intervene in nature. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming you're familiar with David Pierce's work. Of course. Um, and uh, even though he's a negative utilitarian, which I'm not, but I, I'm a big admirer of his as well. And I think the future could be quite um blissful and i yeah i think we should stick around to see it well i i very much agree with at least part of that i do think we should stick around uh at least until we can figure out what to do uh about the the problem of animal wild animal suffering animal suffering all sentient suffering in general um so much to unpack there we'll get to all of those points uh later would you say that 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 point that that friend made to you is what sort of turned you from being an antinatalist to a not being an antinatalist that was sort of the, the breaking point yeah, I, yeah. I, I do think so it was um you just pointed out that the idea of it was such a subtle intervention that um the idea of the absence of good is not bad is um maybe requires more motivation or you know is i, I, I yeah i don't think it's um as intuitive or as self-evident as maybe some strong um, antinatalist um, um, belief. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, it could be a case of, you know, the people's intuitions just diverge and um, I'm not sure if there is a 
you know, if there's if there are other intuitions we can appeal to to um, find some sort of convergence, I'm not sure. Well, I think I think what a what a, a strong antinatalist position would say is that you know these are needs that don't need to exist, um, and it's certainly I, I mean I I, I would cons- I I would align myself with that view, but I would also admit that I find it sad to think about an empty playground or. You know, um, there's lots of there's lots of things in life that I value and the idea that, you know, nobody's going to enjoy them. There's never going to be another, you know, the idea that in the future, there's never going to be another person to enjoy a song or write a song or, you know, play with an action figure or go to, you know, go to a go to a show or something is certainly sad. But the the you know, at what cost does all of that come in the first place, I I, I guess, is 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 what keeps me an antinatalist, I would I would I would would say. Yeah. Um, how did I assume that how you got originally got interested in antinatalism was through David Benatar? Um, but were there other you know antinatalist thinkers or writers uh, that you know in, inspired you to to think about this topic more, uh, especially in relation to animals? I assume David Pierce and and Magnus Winding. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think. Um... I'm assuming there's a lot of people who've even, you know, come across your podcast or sorted out and maybe, you know, it's quite possible to arrive at antinatalist conclusions quite um, independently of having read Benatar. So, I mean, that was, um, um, I think anyone who, you know, tries to live an introspective and examined life, um, you know, has thoughts at some point in their lives, you know, you you can't, uh, no one has an interest in, being birthed and um you know and there's also i mean so i I, you know i dabbled in antinatalism before i was familiar with the term um and also yeah so and then you know once i you know try to find maybe you know other thinkers who thought similar uh, you know similar things i that's sort of when i uh, came across David Benatar's work for the first time and uh, the symmetry, um, his various asymmetries were intuitively very appealing to me. And um, so, yeah, that was probably around 10 years ago. And, um, but yeah, uh, you know, my thinking has evolved on the topic and maybe it'll evolve again and maybe it'll come around again to your view. But um, yeah, at this point, I am, I, yeah, I'm, I don't know. You don't want to um, trivialize a a very serious philosophical position by suggesting it might have to do with, you know, some psychological underpinnings. But, you know, for me personally, maybe there was a time in my life where I was, um, you know, less uh, optimistic about the future. And maybe that's maybe why I sought it out to begin with. Obviously, you know, the merits of antinatalism are totally independent of that. I grant that. Um, but um, yeah, so, you know, maybe if, maybe if I'm, you know, less pessimistic about, uh, uh, less optimistic about the future again, then maybe I'll change my views again. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Ludwig, outside of Wikipedia, 
uh, the word antinatalism is still not included in or defined by any dictionary in the world in any language. Um, I have twice now campaigned to have the word added to the Oxford English Dictionary to no avail. And in addition to this, even the Wikipedia definition keeps changing. Um, so yeah. do you have any thoughts on how antinatalism should be defined? And I just want to add to that, that, you know, no definition that's that's come about. Um, well, with some exception it doesn't really address the, the topic of sentience within some of the proposed definitions. Um, do you have any thoughts on that at all? Um, yeah, I, I suppose um, we, the idea that we have a duty not to procreate, um, I mean, that's... Sure. And, and I mean, that's uh, that's the simplest definition I can come up with, but yes, I think it's... Um, I think the idea of in order to reduce suffering is obviously... Um, yeah, is sort of in, you know implied by by that uh, moral duty. Um, but yes, I I'm lament that you have not been successful because you know even just writing my thesis and uh, spell check keeps on flagging antinatalism, which is quite a uh, frustrating because like you know did I did I spell it correctly? What's going on here? And then yeah, but um, yeah, I hope you successful at some point. I hope so too. Yeah, it's a bit of a crazy circumstance. Natalist is in the dictionary, but not antinatalist, so it's very interesting. Uh, so now moving on to your essay, Better Never to Have Been in the Wild, A Case for Weak Wildlife Antinatalism, released April 2022, so just very recently. Um, I was wondering if you'd mind if I read the abstract, uh, unless you'd like to. But sure. Um, most people have an idyllic view of nature and believe that wild animals have good lives, but nature is a hostile place. In addition to the suffering inflicted, inflicted upon prey by their predators, many wild animals are victims of infectious disease, extreme weather, starvation, and parasitism. Yet it is often claimed that an abundance of wildlife is desirable. The aim of this thesis is to challenge this premise. My argument will proceed into, uh, proceed into four parts. First, I will show that the lives of most wild animals are characterized by a surplus of negative experiences and that there are a myriad of ways in which wild animals suffer. Secondly, I will challenge the notion that wildlife has intrinsic value by considering and arguing against two related claims, that the lives of the individual wild animals have intrinsic value, and that wild species as a whole are of intrinsic value. Third, I will consider whether wildlife has instrumental value, and if so, whether it is sufficient to justify traditional uh, conservation methods. I conclude that this is not the case. Finally, I will argue that it may be best for most wild animals not to be born at all, a view I refer to as weak wildlife antinatalism. While such a conjecture may strike many as deeply counterintuitive, I will make the case that it is both technically feasible and morally desirable. Desirable, sorry. Um, so within the 69 pages of this paper, I do feel you make a very strong argument regarding uh, sentientism. I always pronounce that a little bit wrong. Um, I don't know how anyone can in good faith argue with the notion that wild animals, you know, lead desperate and brutal lives it just seems so completely, uh, you know, impossible to argue against, but indeed they do. Um, I, I was wondering if you could first tell me a little bit about, you know, what your process of putting this work together was, what inspired it, um, and maybe just, you know, s some of what went into the process of, of writing it. Um, yeah, so the, um, I should probably note here that, you know, the 
I, you know, try to introduce some novelty into this discussion, but the the idea of wildlife antinatalism is uh, definitely not an original one to me. Um, you know, um, I do credit the philosopher Magnus Winding in the paper, who I think wrote um, maybe a 2000 word essay or so on the topic in 2017 or 2018. Um, so the idea of um, wild wild animal suffering has been um, you know top of my mind for quite some time. Um, I I'm a, a, a utilitarian, and um, that also you know some you know puts me in touch with the effective altruism community, where um, the you know yeah, the idea of wild animal suffering is a recurring theme. Um, so I. I thought uh, this is what I want to spend my time writing about. And I mean, it must be noted also that this paper is my master's thesis. So, you know, I have to, you know, I have to come up with a topic. I have to, you know, engage with it for a lengthy period of time. Um, and uh, just in this, you know, having discussions with my supervisor, the idea of just like, you know, broadly advocating for wildlife interventionism is maybe a little bit too, let's call it dull. Um, so, uh, you know, and I think I thought the idea of um, antinatalism is for wild animals, wild animals is one that I can defend and also by emphasizing the idea of weak wildlife antinatalism, it will also give me the opportunity to um, differentiate myself from Magnus and um, and also, you know, you know, uh, critique not yeah, antinatalism, this the strong version as well, which uh, yeah, which uh, which I did. Yeah, I, 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 th I think you managed to be quite distinct, actually, from from Magnus's uh, version. I think you added to it quite, quite a bit. And we'll, we'll get into some of the particulars of that in, in just a moment. Um, you did quite a lot to argue against the idea that animals have intrinsic value, or that species as a whole have intrinsic value. Um, just for the sake of our audience that, that perhaps hasn't read the paper yet, could you tell us a little bit about your argument uh, regarding this that you make in the paper? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I you know, I uh, first, I think my, my first, um, in chapter two, um, after the introduction, I tried to make the empirical case that um, wild animals experience a surplus of negative experiences. And um, a lot of my thesis hinges on that claim, which is obviously an empir empirical one. Um, and I, uh, you know, I do think there's a good case to be made for that. You know, there's um, many scholars have pointed out the idea of the um, K selection versus R uh, selections um, strategies when it comes to reproduction. Um, yeah, maybe we do, I can just give a quick recap of what that means. K selection um, entails um, uh, heavy uh, parental investment into just a few offspring, as is the case with, would be for humans. Um, and our strategy is the idea of just flooding the environment with progeny. And so, you know, a few of them survive into adulthood. Um, both of those are, you know, sustainable um, strategies, but our strategy comes with a lot of, you know, infant death. Um, 
um, and that is the prevalent um, reprodu reproductive strategy in the wild. So just based on, you know, you can just make a statistical argument for the fact that wildlife um, does experience a surplus of suffering. Um, so that was the empirical claim, but then you can still argue, some might argue that wildlife, if, if you accept that, then the idea of wildlife conservation can be seen as the mere perpetuation of misery, really. Um, but, you know, there might be other arguments um, for why we should conserve wildlife, um, one of which is that it has intrinsic value and one of which which has instrumental value and um, intrinsic value then again needs to be broken down further um there's obviously people who think uh, these abstract communities such as um you know species have intrinsic value which is a very diff uh, philosophical very difficult task uh you know uh, argument to make um i uh, I mean, I, I looked at some of the arguments in favor for that, but I found them quite unconvincing. Um, you know, there are, and there are also people who just think biodiversity is intrinsically, intrinsically valuable, um, which I, the idea of diversity being intrinsically valuable is also one I uh, found unconvincing. I mean, we can, do you want me to go into why um, I find these arguments unconvincing? Sure, I'd love that, if you wouldn't mind, yeah. Okay, so I mean, just the idea of, you know, if we think that diversity is um, intrinsically valuable, and that's why we need to conserve species. Um, I, I mean, I think it's often more of a, a post hoc, um, you know, rationalization um, for um, conserving species, because the people who make these sort of arguments very rarely suggest that we should, uh, you know, create new species. So, I mean, if your goal is just diversity, then, um, then I mean, you'll, you should be spending time in, you know, laboratories and, you know, um, trying to create new um, insect species or something, you know. Um, so that's also one way of increasing diversity. So I think that's very, really the actual motive for why people lament um, the extinction of a particular species. Um, and then, you know, the, the idea of species as a whole, you know, it's like, forget about the, the individual animals, we must just conserve species as a whole. And there are, I think, the, the philosopher um, Holmes Rolston III, uh, I hope I get that right, he um, argues that, you know, his, a species just like an individual animal has um, a, has a, um, a you know follows a path of um, it sort of has a telos you know the idea of um, having a, a goal and um, I think it just that idea is I think sort of gets the the causal chain a bit backwards you know I mean there are animals a species stay you know alive because um they because individual animals reproduce it's not um, they don't reproduce for the sake of perpetuating um the species you know i mean the uh, yeah and 
I mean, that's that, that's that argument. And then um, I do in the paper also argue against the idea of the idea of an individual animal um, life um, having an intrinsic value. So I think in your introduction, you said that I argue against uh, wild animals not having intrinsic value, which is not the case. I mean, I do think the it's a, a subtle point, but obviously I do think the wild animal deserves moral consideration for its own sake. So in that sense, it does have intrinsic value, but um, a life independent of quality does not have intrinsic value. So um, there are, you know, I think most of us accept this, you know, when our cat has a, you know, debilitating disease, we, uh, we don't think it sh we should just keep it alive and let it continue to suffer because that life has intrinsic value. I mean, there are some people who, you know, have hold this view with regards to humans, you know, the sanctity of life view, but um, I think very few people would um, extend that to animals. Um, so I think, you know, the idea of conserving animals just so we can continue creating life seems a bit absurd. Uh, if, if that were the case, then, you know, someone might find no greater calling in life than to just breed rats in their own backyard because each additional rodent would just increase the total amount of value in the universe. Um, I don't know if anyone would be willing to bite that bullet. Um, so those are the, um, yeah. And then, like I said, the idea of abstract communities having, having um, Intrinsic value independent of the conscious experience of its members, I think is a dangerous one. I mean, that's, you know, that sort of could justify, you know, the factory farming of chickens, where we just say, look, it's good for the species. Um, because at any point in time, there's about 20 billion chickens alive. So, you know, that's a, is that species flourishing? Um, you know, that's a very narrow view of flourishing just because it's a, Alive as a species, and I think um, yeah, a lot of harm can come from that sort of view because you can just legitimize um, the the perpetuation of cruelty. Really, thank you so much for going through all of that. Yes, uh, and I apologize for that error that I made. Thank you for the correction. Um, you know, I hadn't thought to ask this until now, but I mean, do you have any thoughts mm -hmm. on you know these attempts that are that are now being proposed to bring back you know species that have already gone extinct, mm -hmm. like? You know, there are people that want to bring back the woolly mammoth or, or some of some other creatures yeah. like that. What, what are your thoughts on, you know, inclinations like yeah. that? Well, um, for the sake of, yeah, it depends what the motivations are. So, I mean, I mean, if someone says biodiversity is such a good, then yes, I mean, I suppose then that would be, um, uh, that follows quite, you know, naturally. But I think uh, maybe it's more a case of, um, you know, interest. And, um, you know, if you can, you know, I mean, if you can bring it back and give it a good life, um, then um, yeah, I'm, I'm not against it. Um, it could be quite interesting. But, you know, if it's um, a case of bringing back the T-Rex, the you know, just so we can, um, um, you know, um, maybe lock him up and, you know, just for curiosity's sake and, you know, you know, just put him in a cage uh, and feed him, you know, other sentient beings, you know, probably, I mean, I, I'd be against that. But um, if it's, 
but yeah, uh, the idea of bringing it back, uh, yeah, uh, I'm not a, I think it's interesting. And if you can guarantee that it's, you know, you give it a pleasant life, then um, I'm for it. Obviously, you can argue maybe resources are better spent elsewhere, but um, I mean, that's maybe the, the, the main argument against it. Okay, yeah, thank you for your thoughts on that. Um, your claims about instrumental value um, are really interesting, and I, of course, agree that most of what we perceive to be the instrumental value of wildlife, we, in fact, should not. <laughs> and as you say, history and technological process also suggest that much of the value produced by wildlife today can be achieved through different means in the future. And I think you know, a lot of that is true, I, I do believe. Um, however, you do say that there are certain wild species such as pollinators whose demise could be catastrophic to uh, human flourishing. I'm, I'm not, that might, I'm, that might be different than exactly the wording you use, but in, in effect, I think that's what you say. Um, and so I think there's a lot for us to unpack here. However, before we do, would you mind detailing your thoughts on the instrumental value of, of, of wildlife a, a, a bit more for our audience? Your, the argument yeah. you make in the paper, yeah. Okay, so I mean, the you know, some of the, I should maybe pull up my thesis as well to have it in front of me so I can recall everything I said. I apologize. Um, but it's okay. But, um, you know, there's, I think, um, there's obviously recreational value and, um, you know, people like going, you know, on safari and um, viewing wild animals in the natural habitat. And I, I grant that that is a, a source of um, value. I mean, uh, I do think that can bring joy to people, but, but I mean, again, you know, does it justify the cost? Um, uh, as an analogy, you know, there might be, let's say, you know, aliens coming down from Earth in the year 1942 or something, you know, peak of the second world war and you know just looking at um what's going on and they might think you know look at um, look at humans in their natural habitat quite interesting and um i think we um i mean i i don't think that sort of attitude would be too dissimilar as what the current attitudes we have towards um yeah, wildlife. I mean, you see these, you know, I, li I live in South Africa, we've got uh, Kruger National Park, it's a big tourist attraction. And you can, you know, on YouTube, you can look online, the, you know, people, you know, have, you know, capture footage of, uh, of a leopard or a lion, you know, killing a zebra or gazelle. And, um, you know, that's like a source of fascination for them. And um, I think, I mean, I just think that's morally misguided. So, I mean, I'm not saying these people that um, take joy in these things are, you know, psychologically, you know, moral monsters. But I do think um, with some introspection, you know, maybe um, I think we can overcome the, the, the lamenting of that no longer being um, a, a recreational activity. Um, I think in my thesis, the, I make an analogy to um, gladiator games, which is maybe a bit of an unkind um, analogy. But, you know, there's, um, you know, watching what, you know, watching these gladiator games, you saw exotic animals, you saw, um, 
you know, it was a source of, you know, entertainment and, um, and people got killed. And um, I mean, and I highly doubt that some many or even most, you know, most, never mind many of the people that um, participated in these or, you know, enjoyed these spectacles were, were, you know, um, bad people, you know, they were just, um, you know, also uh, victims of the uh, environment and the, the culture. And um, so, I mean, I don't want to, you know, compare wildlife enthusiasts to to um, people watching gladiator games, but um, it's, it's um, yeah, both are considered sources of entertainment and uh, both produce a, a tremendous amount of harm. And I do think with, um, you know, with, you know, years to come and maybe with a bit of moral progress, we might well look back at, um, you know, that sort of, you know, safari um, um, activity as something that we might be embarrassed about future generations. I mean, I, for one, think likening that to gladiator wars is a perfectly apt analogy. So I, I, was, I was actually very happy to see you see you make that claim. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't uh, I suppose I'm I'm slightly more pessimistic about, you know, um, getting people to recognize their enjoyment of exploitation, you know. Um, but I certainly hope that that might be the case. Um, you argue, of course, that it might be best for most wild animals not to be born at all, an idea that w which you dub weak wildlife antinatalism. And you make the case that weak wildlife antinatalism, to quote, is both technically feasible and morally desirable. Morally, ethically, I'm, I'm with you 100%. Technically speaking, I'm just less knowledgeable about what is, is possible. Um, why do you believe that it, that it would be uh, technically feasible to accomplish what weak wildlife antinatalism. I mean, I think that the weak version, um, you know, uh, also give myself a bit of leeway with, you know, adding the modifier of weak because um, right. you can definitely see the number being reduced quite drastically. I mean, people do it via culling and instead of culling, you can, you know, there might be, you know, um, you know, we can use, uh, immunocontraceptives and um, which um, in it, um, which can you know reduce the amount of offspring um, some animals have and you can also maybe use gene editing technology to uh, maybe select for only males um, I mean that's one path to go down on and I must also stress that when it comes to the actual science of it and uh, I'm also, I mean, I'm not very, very well versed. I just, um, I thought it would have been a, a cop-out to introduce this idea without at least contemplating some ways of doing it. Um, of course, yeah. Yeah, so um, I think, uh, you know, the philosopher David Pierce, um, you know, he's written quite extensively on this topic and, you know, he's advocating for this uh, biohappiness revolution where we make use of some of these tools and look, I mean, I don't think we should, you know, approach, you know, go gung ho into to wildlife and, um, you know, disrupt ecosystems, which, um, you know, maybe can be detrimental to 
you know, cause some sort of detrimental effect. But I do think people who are advocating for no intervention whatsoever is um, morally misguided because the status quo yes. is also really bad. So, you know, let's do nothing because you might make things worse is, um, I mean, that, you know, I mean, you can apply that argument to almost anything. So you should be just never do anything. And um, I do think maybe, you know, you can trial things, um, you know, in, in a, you know, isolated um, spaces, you know, and look, I think any, any wildlife intervention would require or would entail some sort of fertility regulation. I mean, we just, you know, if you live somewhere with a lot of um, stray cats and dogs running around the street, no one would would suggest that, um, you know, this, uh, let, just let them be, you know, rummaging through the rubbish and be in their natural habitat because that's, you know, natural. I mean, I think most of us um, really take a weak antenatalist view when it comes to companion animals. I mean, yes. that's why we um, why, why we sterilize them. And um, I think that, I mean, the lesson from there to take from there is the idea that if you can't look after the animal, um, it's better for them to not uh, be born. Um, and yeah, so I'm just sort of extending that same courtesy to, to wild animals. Um, and the idea of, you know, disrupting the ecosystem, which is why I, you know, I sort of acknowledge that uh, I'm also not that close to the science, but yes, we may need pollinators, etc. But um, do we really need the lion to fertilize our soil? I mean, I just think um, that's often a bit of a, again, a rationalization of wildlife enthusiasts who say, you know, we shouldn't interfere um, for fear of, you know, some sort of disru uh, disruption of the ecosystem. Right, right. Um, and for you, what would a, a moderate or medium <laughs> wildlife antinatalism look like? And what would a strong wildlife antinatalist position be in your mind? And, and why would you consider both to be undesirable you know, in, in favor of a weak wildlife antinatalism. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think, I guess the strong antinatalist view might um, also then include some wildlife that might indeed be essential, um, you know, like the pollinators, like the birds. Um, you know, again, I'm just, I'm just reluctant to go strong antinatalist here because I'm, again, not that close to the science. I do you think some caution is um, merited. Um, and the, I mean, the weak view, look, I mean, retiring predators. Um, I mean, that would be, um, I, I think the weak view does accommodate the retiring of predators and the uh, fear of, you know, overpopulation of deers and, you know, herbivores, I think could be again accommodated by some sort of immuno contraceptives and other fertility regulation. And look, I mean, there's probably, there are people who are much closer to the science than me that are probably very, you know, up in arms right now with me suggesting these things. But um, I'm, for me, it's a case of, um, 
you know, I might be wrong about the way of how we, you know, should go about these things, but um, the response to that should not be that we should not try. It should be to figure out not um, if we should do it, but how we should do it. Um, so the debate needs to be shifted from if to yes. how. And um, so, yeah, and then what would, you know, it's, it's also possible that if there's a lot less wildlife that we might be able to um, conserve some of it because if, you know, I've been to, I've been to game parks, game reserves where only herbivores were present and also not that many, but you know, if they, an animal gets, you know, injured or, you know, I mean, just help it, you know I mean? So, which is, um, you know, there we could maybe intervene medically, but I mean, those sort of interventions are probably not feasible if with the current uh, numbers of wildlife that are around today. So to reduce it dr drastically to maybe, you know, retire predators and, ultimately get it down to a number where we can conserve some of the instrumental value that it does have to offer, you know, recreational value, but we can also intervene when, when necessary. Okay, thank you for that. Um, I, I apologize that I'm not sure what page this is from, but I, I quote um, from, from part of the paper. Thirdly, and somewhat re relatedly on the weak view, antinatalism would not apply to all wildlife. Assuming it is true that some wildlife uh, plays a significant role in functioning ecosystems, then their extinction would be detrimental to the flourishing of sentient beings left behind. Um, so this sentence did give me some, some pause, I have to say, because there is an element to this statement, and, and you'll have to forgive me because I don't, I don't believe that this is your, your intention, but there is a, an element to that statement that I do think kind of departs from antinatalism a bit and goes into so, sort of a eugenics uh, argument, really, that we should eliminate sort of unneeded species or species that, again, don't play this utility uh, and keep the ones that are absolutely necessary for human survival. And that does, I mean, in my view, that doesn't really strike me as particularly antinatalist. Um, hmm. and, and, and in a sense does sort of go into another form of speciesism. I mean, what, what are we doing <laughs> that's so fantastic that all of, you know, all of uh, nature has to be sort of surgically operated upon to uh, you know, maximize uh, our you know perpetuation into the future. I mean, you know, is is anything that we do really of greater value than the wonderfulness of the rhino? I mean, if the rhino has no, uh, we, if we can if we can determine that the rhino or the elephant has no instrumental value. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck on what our instrumental value is that's really so worth preserving that, again, we need to go into nature and uh, yeah. pick and choose based on yeah, what, what's, so, what's going to help us. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I'm also, um, I do think I point out that, you know, we can, um, look, I mean, I, I'm also somewhat, uh, I'm also very sympathetic to, to transhumanism. And I do think that if we, you know, manage to stick around as a species, that's humans. Um, um, I do think we might unlock 
um, you know, the potential to experience, you know, states of bliss that, um, that are, you know, we can't, you know, that are unimaginable at this point. Um, and so I do want to keep the human race going and, uh, it might sound, it might sound species, but, um, it's not, you know, speciesism is also, I think, um, sometimes misunderstood because some of the some of the um arguments i mean i would for instance maybe prefer the life to save the life of another human than i do um you know the life of a chicken and it's not the species membership that plays the the you know the is the deciding factor in that decision it is the the maybe the specific um you know maybe the cognitive architecture of that um, particular person who i think might be able to access um greater states of um bliss and i look i mean there's a good chance I'm, i'm wrong about that as well so i mean if there's an animal that is just in a perpetually blissful place then i think we should do what we can to to not go you know to keep it from going extinct because it would um you know because it increases the total amount of value in the universe so um yeah i mean that you would have gotten from um the page where i tried to differentiate myself from um strong anti antinatalism so um yeah that's so yeah i mean that's that's where that comes from yeah, and that, and that's fair. I mean, I I, th- I think I think you know at, between us, I mean, there there probably are some ir- irreconcilable differences there. I I am in favor of sentient extinction, but this argument between th- those two cro- the, the crossroads, you know, of of sort of a paradise engineering and you know trying to exit as as cleanly as possible is like my my pet you know, subject. I, I, it's, it's, it's a great interest to me. So I really appreciate you having uh, yeah. the conversation uh, with me regarding all of that. Um, Magnus Binding's 2017 essay, The Speciesism of Leaving Nature Alone and the Theoretical Case for Wildlife Antinatalism was, you know, I believe an incredibly important piece, a very brave mm. piece, honestly, um, that I, that I think I, believe was the inspiration for at least part of of, of this paper. Um, I, I have read that paper several times. I did skim over it once again. It had been a while, though. I, I did skim over it once again last night um, in preparation for this. How, how do you feel that your proposed weak wildlife antinatalism is different from what Magnus uh, proposes in that paper? It's probably it's probably not too different because uh, I mean I don't think he um, it's it's just a case that I don't think he maybe sufficiently points out that um, the the I mean I'm sure he's a, you know he's aware of these things but maybe he doesn't fully acknowledge the instrumental value that um, wildlife can play in perpetuating just life on Earth. Um, I know Magnus, um, I don't know if he is an actual antinatalist, but I do know no, he's, he's got, uh, is he not? Okay, that's interesting. But I mean, he does have a, a suffering focused ethic, which um, that's also maybe somewhere where, I mean, I, I don't, um, so I don't, um, I don't, uh, I mean, I prioritize suffering for practical reasons, uh, because bigger gains can be made. 
Um, but I don't think in principle um, that we have a greater duty to minimize suffering than maximizing pleasure. It's just, um, I mean, there's just, there's so much low hanging fruit when it comes to suffering and so much suffering can be reduced. Um, yeah. I think much easier than it is to um, you know, maximize well-being. I think you're right. I, I, I think it's the instrumental value argument that I think is, is maybe the biggest, the biggest separator. Um, okay. So my yeah. next, my next question is a bit of a long, mm -hmm. a long one. So please bear with me. Um, the inclusion of wild animals or animal life in general, all sentient life within the conversation around antinatalism is still very controversial, even among antinatalists. Um, to quote uh, Magnus back in 2017, the current literature on antinatalism, including the work of Benatar focuses almost exclusively on human procreation and thus says precious little about wild wildlife antinatalism. In particular, although Benatar makes clear that his argument favors it. Uh, this must be considered a missed opportunity for antinatalists uh, for two reasons. One, because non-human beings in nature comprise the vast majority of sentient beings on the planet, more than 99% of them. And two, because regardless of how strong one thinks the case for antinatalism is in the human context, the argument for the antinatalist conclusion is much stronger when it comes to non-human beings in nature. So this missed opportunity, as Magnus calls it, which I, I, I love that he phrased it that way, uh, remains, again, one of the biggest divisions in the antenatal world amongst antenatalists. And in fact, it did give rise in around 2012 to the creation of a whole other division of antenatalism called ethylism that never makes this species distinction uh, that, that separates between, you know, uh, what's sometimes called sentiocentric antinatalism versus anthropocentric antinatalism. Um, when talking about true sentiocentric antinatalism or wildlife antinatalism and considering what the world would look like or, or how, uh, how it will occur in the real world, there is always an element of a kind of like speculative sci-fi fiction <laughs> that I always find, you know, extremely fascinating to consider. And one of the things that I find the most unique about your contribution to this conversation around wild antinatalism of any form is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, your paper does not seem to actively consider wildlife antinatalism occurring within the context of an antinatalist human world, which is also working towards human extinction at the same time or, or near the same time. And I, I think so considering that, I'm curious how you feel um, that human extinction, in addition to wildlife antinatalism, Natalism happening concurrently, if they were to happen around the same time, might change some of the concerns uh, for some of the more salient points you bring up regarding instrumental value of wildlife. Like if we're on our way out, then all you know, all of all of this like concern for you know keeping certain species around, um, I, I think kind of kind of goes away. I mean, we're not we don't need pollinators anymore at that point. It's all just sort of you know, the curtain is closing on, on all of it. So uh, does total sentient extinction challenge your ethical stance of taking a weaker approach, approach as to uh, taking a stronger one in, a, uh, in regards to wildlife? Um, yeah, look, it's, yeah, I think I'm just um, based on my other philosophical views. Um, I, you know, I, I mean, yes, if that's your, if your view is that, you know, human extinction is good, then of course, then, you know, then you can also make a strong case for wildlife antinatalism. 
I grant that, but um, I, in the paper, I sort of proposed this sentientist view, which um, obviously just, um, it's, even though sentientism tries to not be associated with any particular normative theory, I do think um, my own um, endorsement of it is from a utilitarian perspective, which does, um, and not from a negative utilitarian perspective, but just a classical um, utilitarianism. So I want to maximize, um, you know, well-being, and that does that does entail keeping the human um, species um, around. Um, just because um, I do think we are, I mean. We, it will require humans to, you know, invent the relevant technologies and pharmaceutical interventions to make um, life on Earth blissful. And um, so in that sense, that's why I, I don't endorse the strong uh, antenatalist view for wildlife because yeah, essentially um, yeah, for instrumental reasons. Um, I don't know, does that answer your question, Amanda? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I my question was, I, I suppose, was more of, you know, if if A and B happens, you know, yeah. would that would that change your view? But I, 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 I appreciate your answer very much. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, if both happened at the same time, I, I would lament that uh, because sure, like sure. I said, I do. Yeah. yeah. Well, let, um, I suppose this is, in some respects, the same question, sort of in a, in a different a different way. So, uh, um, you detail some possible ob objections that you might receive to wildlife antinatalism. One of them being, and I quote, "If life for wild animals is so bad that they're better off not being born, does it not follow that we have an obligation to kill those that are already alive?" Um, this and related objections are common whenever the topic of antinatalism is raised. After all, if non-existence is superior to existence, then death appears to be a logical remedy. But this is uh, this is to confuse the position of antinatalism with that of pro-mortalism, the philosophical position that is always better to cease sentient ex existence rather than continue it. Um, so I'm quite sure that we could spend many days together unpacking the connection or non-connection between pro-mortalism and antinatalism that is... Uh, in addition to the inclusion of the animals, one of the, the hottest, uh, hottestly debated things amongst antinatalists. Um, for the sake of, uh, of our conversation today, though, um, if we can consider a scenario, uh, and I'm curious to know what your thoughts on this is, let's say human extinction is imminent after a long course of organized antinatalism amongst humans, which has uh, included perhaps some immunocontraceptive programs for the animals, perhaps. And we are as one sentience on planet Earth facing sentient extinction, except that there are some animals that we perhaps are not able to sterilize or free from their sentient bonds by other means for whatever reason. Let's say there's deep sea fish or something that we can't get to for, for some reason. Um, in, 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 with some of these methods that I would certainly favor, you know. Um, and this is part of the, this is sort of part of the active conversation that, you know, sort of ethicalism proposes. What is the most eth ethical thing to do in that case? Would it be to allow those species to go on and continue to replicate and so and, and thus perpetuate their suffering? 
um, or would it be justified in ending that little bit of remaining sentience, even if it meant killing them as humanely as possible? Do you have any thoughts um, on that? Yes. Yeah, so in that scenario, um, we are assuming that humans will go extinct. Is that, is that something? Yes, right? it's, all, it's all imminent. Yeah. 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 Um, in that case, yeah, I do think that the, the ethical remedy would be to, um, I mean, maybe I should give this some more thought, but I mean, um, it's, I mean, I'd be tempted to, to take, a, um, maybe take the necessary intervention to um, maybe then extinguish all life. And um, there's, there's obviously the, uh, at the one consideration of maybe intelligence could evolve um, once again uh, if we left them um, to continue and you know 13 billion years of suffering later maybe we we would have um, some intelligent life that could um, you know save us um, and abolish suffering and, you know, bring about a, a, a world of um, perpetual bliss. Um, I mean, but I mean, that's, you know, very speculative, but um, yeah, I um, would not, but I mean, personally in that scenario that you sketched out, I would be prepared to, you know, um, you know, you know, partake in some altruistic um, killing, I guess um i'm not um i actually think that even though i mean i try to you know distance myself from the pro-mortalist view and try to you know differentiate the antinatalist and the pro-mortalist view and i do think there's a difference but i don't think it's as strong a difference as maybe yeah. my writing would suggest <laughs> um i was I, I uh, part of me just, you know, this was, I think, I mean, this thesis was also written, you know, in keeping in mind, not necessary for public consumption, but, you know, to obtain a grade. And part of me was, I don't know if I want to go down that rabbit hole. So there is just literature that exists on that difference. And I, you know, uh, you know, mentioned Benatar and, uh, but in terms of, even when I was at my most sympathetic to um, Benatar's views, I, I, I did think at times that his conclusion are, could lead to primordialism. You know, the idea of let's all, you know, let's all fall asleep at the same time um, and not wake up where there's no, it entails no suffering if you could just, you know, click your, snap your fingers and we all, fall asleep forever, um, is this something the antinatalist would not endorse? And I think it's good to maybe differentiate yourself from this view, but it's, I do think if you are, I mean, if you're convinced that life is suffering, then I do think that's, uh, it's not self-evident to me that you wouldn't make that call. I don't know, I mean, how do you feel about that, Amanda? Um, I, I mean, I, I think it's a matter of, of, of when, right? Like I, I, I am an antinatalist, so I, I want mm. to see, um, you know, I do think that at least on paper, philosophically speaking, you know, if you did have the red button and you, if mm. pressed, it would all just 
go away. You know, the the, the entire mm. material universe would just end. The, I mean, mm. yes, there would be consent violations. It's not it's not the most perfectly ethical thing you could you could do, but it would be the right thing to do. Um, now that's not a scenario in the real world. You know, in the real world, I think we have this this, in my mind, wonderful tool of antinatalism. And so if we did bring, you know, the human population down to nil, we took that, we took care of the animals, you know, at that point, and this is where we would have a divergence, I believe it's, it's just making sure it never happens again. <laughs> and so yeah. I am in favor of doing what we need to do to make sure of that. Um, But um, do you agree that the pro-mortalist position is not as far removed from the antinatalist position as uh, some people try to um, claim, perhaps? I, I don't. So I've gone kind of back and forth on, on this. You know, most of the time, pro-mortalism seems to be in relation to suicide and not this conversation. And so and, and I'm I'm. I'm a little bit stuck if this whole conversation is exactly pro-mortalism or whether it's more the ethics of extinctionism or I, I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I'm there's 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 certain aspects of pro-mortalism's inclusion in this particular conversation that I, I'm, I'm not I don't particularly feel solid on. Um, but I, I do you know, and I am a, I am a right to die activist as well as being an yeah. antinatalist. And so. If somebody, you know, if we, if we did take a second to talk about suicide, if somebody is is a pro-mortalist, and there are many antinatalist pro-mortalists, so whatever, you know, distancing antinatalism wants to do from that subject, I, I don't think it's su succeeding. I think there's plenty of antinatalists that do identify that way. But if, so if somebody was to be a pro-mortalist, and that is their reason for wanting to have their right to a graceful exit, um, want, you know, to access to medically assisted suicide. Like, I don't think that they're being irrational. So, so you know, yeah. uh, full stop. Um, I do think that there's probably far more connection to pro-mortalism and antinatalism than most antinatalists would like there to be. I do want to point out that, um, obviously, I think, um, you know, I mean, antinatalism is a, I mean, it is an altruistic um, yes. endeavor. And um, so, you know, you know, when some people say I'm an antinatalist and then someone else responds, um, you know, why didn't you kill yourself or something, which right, is, right. I mean, that's obviously, I mean, and they, the antinatalist could be quite consistent in their belief and say, no, of course not, because also their own death brings about a lot of suffering for others. Sure. So in that sense, obviously, I do think um, antinatalism does not in any way um, promote suicide, but but pro-mortalism, yeah, you know the the magic red button scenario. I do think is um, is a yeah that's a more difficult question for you know, the the antinatalist who wants to really distance themselves uh, from pro-mortalism. But yeah, I also think uh, I think I have heard Benatar you know, talk about, um, I think his, his position on the badness of death is the one that he's, I think, least confident about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do think he, he has acknowledged that, but there's maybe also, you know, a moral uncertainty factor creeping in there, which I think is 
you know, right? I mean, yeah. death is bad for some of the reasons he claims. Um, and also maybe, yeah, I mean, maybe we're just like, um, I, mean, I mean, there's also, yeah, maybe death is bad and we just, you know, don't quite see it or something, you know? And um, so I do think it's, the, I mean, it's just uh, it's, it's an obstacle that the antinatalist view doesn't have to um, deal with. Well, I'm glad you brought up the, you know, the the most common response to antinatalism being, why don't you just kill yourself? And I, I, I would I would agree that, no, I, I don't believe that antinatalism promotes suicide. But I think it I think that when you when you are when you're firm on the belief that, you know, um, coming into existence is, is wrong, I mean, or, 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 or bad for the one that has to come into existence. I, I, I think it, I think it does, um, it, there's a, there's a certain, you know, compassion that just becomes evident that people do want to exit. Um, and so again, I, I think there is a inherent connection to, towards a, a sympathy with, with like the right to die movement. Um, but I also, I, I don't, you know, uh, I think people need to, if they have an antinatalist understanding, um, I think people kind of need to stay here as long as possible, because I think that that understanding is rare and, um, you know, people need to try to express it, you know, as much as possible. It's, it's, it's sort of, I mean, you know, to, to, to expect that new people will be born to then come to the same conclusion and, you know, then they'll have to do the work. I mean, it's kind of inherently natalist, right? Like, you know, you, you sort of, if, if you are the vessel of a certain kind of understanding, then you sort of have to do your job, you know, it's sort of a janitorial duty to, um, you know, to make people also understand so that maybe they don't make the same mistakes our progenitors did. Um, so it's- a, there's, a, there's an interesting possible irony here where maybe, you know, for antinatalism to spread, you might have to have, offspring that you can teach the ideology to well <laughs> maybe that's the only way of um i mean there's obviously other means of spreading the the ideology but um i don't know i'm wondering if there's anyone in the antinatalism um movement that might be open to reproducing just so you don't you, you don't get outnumbered you know otherwise there might be just a selection pressure against the antinatalist view because you know you're all gonna die out before the before the pronatalist. Well I, I I don't think there are any antinatalists that believe that. I, I don't think that philosophy is genetic, right? And like, you know, you can raise yeah. somebody to be a Christian doesn't mean they're gonna end up being a Christian. So yeah. I don't really think that's the way ideas work, you know, like especially yeah. in an internet age, you know, I think I think it's it's more of a matter of uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a war of memes. And as far as what people get exposed to, not necessarily how they're how they're raised. So I I don't um, I, I I you know I don't think that how you maturate children is 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 exactly how you know ideas go into the future. Although it's interesting, like to, okay. to consider yeah. consider the example of the Cathars. So they were like a they were like an antinatalist Christian sect, you know, a thousand, you know many 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 years ago, and they were all wiped out. You know, and and obviously their ideas couldn't perpetuate into the world because they had no internet, they had no cell phones, they had nothing of the kind, and so antinatalism for that period of time did die. So if we were to go back to that kind of world, I think that might be a, a concern, but I, I just don't think that that's uh, a concern anymore. You know. Right. 
<laughs> uh, just a couple of uh, more questions, uh, Ludwig. Thank you so much. Um, to quote your paper, uh, it must uh, it must be remembered that many of our feelings about the status of wild species are intertwined with an idyllic and mistaken view of nature. Much of our desire to keep species from going extinct is rooted in altruism, believing that uh, animals in the wild have good lives because they are free. Therefore, it is possible that once the extent of wild animal suffering becomes widely accepted, existent existence value will be replaced by existence disvalue. That is the painful realization that wild animals continue to live in a state of despair. What do you believe are the most effective methods in, in turning that current narrative around in the minds of people like conservationists or, or, or environmentalists or regular people? And do you believe that there's enough time left for uh, wild animal populations to benefit from this collective epiphany as to the state of their existence. Um, regarding the second question, are there enough wild animals left? I, I mean, I think the answer is yes. Um, I do think, I mean, um, I mean, there's definitely enough left to benefit from some sort of interventionism, you know, uh, which again, I think must include some sort of um, weak antinatalism. I mean, weak antinatalism is arguably, you know, family planning or, you know, fertility regulation, really. Um, I like that, yeah. The, um, but how do you convince them? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, I mean, I suppose, um, I mean, I try to, I mean, I try to write on the topic and try to get people to read it. And I do think, I mean, there's such an overlap in the animal advocacy movement with the environmental movement, you know, because so, you know, people are, um, you know, again, it's, I think you just need to expose them to the actual literature on what life is like in nature. I think that must be, that must be, the, I mean, I think that's maybe what did it for me as well, to a certain degree. It's, um, again, yeah, because I was probably an animal advocate before, I was, you know, I, I mean, you know, I quit meat, eating meat, and but I definitely had so much more concern about farm animals. And then when it comes to wild animals, um, you just don't know that their lives are so bad. And I do think just, um, yeah, I, I think I suppose educating the public about how bad life in the wild is. I mean, there will be those that, you know, um, People would suggest, yeah, you know, it's natural and therefore it's fine. But um, you know, those sort of people are always tough to reach. Um, and that's also again, maybe just you know, a rationalization of the status quo. But I do think, um, yeah, I don't know, showing people like just how how bad um, life in the world is. I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I would recommend that. Yeah, 100%. I think art, writing, it's, it's, it is the most effective tools we have, for sure. What sort of response has the piece received so far? Have you received any feedback from conservationists and environmentalists at all? Um, no hate mail has come my way, and I'm almost oh, a no. surprised. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. Because <laughs> um, I was ready, you know, I was like bracing myself. Um, also, you know, I mean, to be fair, not, I don't. I don't know how many people read the thesis. I mean, that's um, like I said, I did not write it for the 
with the purpose of um, it being consumed um, publicly. It was, um, I don't know if you know Jamie Woodhouse. He I don't. Runs, he runs the sentientism group um, on Facebook. And yes. he is mm-hmm. a, he is really popularized sentientism. He's doing a great job there. And I obviously mentioned sentientism in my thesis um, as the chosen moral framework. And I think he just heard Google alerts on for the word sentientism. So he just came across my my thesis and he shared it. Um, but I mean, it is a you know twenty thousand word thesis. So um, other than you and my supervisor and my examiners, I don't know how many people have read it. Um, I did try. Um, I wrote a less extreme version of it for public consumption. It was published uh, in the South African newspaper. It was like a 2000 word essay um, where I, you know, advocate for interventionism, but I left the antenatalism out of it, you know, just because I didn't want to, you know, you know, baby steps, you know. Um, And again, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know how many people read it, but um, uh, the feedback was just mainly positive and, um, the bit, the bit of feedback that it did get. And for some of them, it's also, you know, there was a, almost like a, you know, light bulb um, switching on, like, you know what I mean? If you, if you care about animals, then yeah, why not extend that courtesy to wild animals? Um, obviously they're more sci-fi and outlandish interventions like veganizing nature. And um, that still like, you know, irks people, but um uh, yeah, I guess um, going back to one of your earlier questions, how do you get people, you know, to care about this topic? I also think maybe don't don't uh, drop the most radical interventions as talking points from the get go. You know, don't um, you know, don't just advocate for antinatalism straight off the bat and um, veganizing nature, but um, you can definitely make small interventions. Um, you know, still. Fertility regulation to to um, replace culling practices. I mean, I think that's a that's maybe one that's reasonably accessible. Um, and yeah, I don't know. You know, work your way up from there. Well, I highly recommend that people go check out the paper. There will be links to it uh, below. And the, the other paper that, that you mentioned was uh, we, we Shouldn't Let Nature Take Its Course. Was that the title? Uh, uh, yeah. Like yeah, yeah I, I apologize. I didn't I didn't quite get a, a chance to actually in, investigate that in, in full, but I, I didn't actually realize that it was a different version of this. So I'm, I'm glad to um, know that. Yeah, yeah. It's just a shorter version. But uh, honestly, the paragraphs are just, I just pulled different paragraphs from the thesis into that. And um, I see. Um, just, just uh, you know, make it more digestible and um, yeah. easier for um, you know, to get a wider reach, I guess. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm terribly sorry to hear that you received any hate o- over the paper. I'm just shame on anybody that 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 did that uh, to you. Um, so again, I highly encourage people to go read it, but please do not send hate to uh, to Ludwig. Uh, that's just absolutely disgusting. Um, Ludwig, what are you currently working on? And do you believe that the subject of antinatalism uh, in relation to animals will remain an important part of your work? Um, I look, I, I'm keen to pursue a PhD next year, but I'm keen to I mean, I've been involved in animal advocacy and writing on the topic of animals for um, a few years now, but part of me does view it as 
a bit of an opportunity cost because I mean I think it's obviously a super important topic and I want people to just be on the same page as me but I do um I do have other interests um uh, transhumanism is a hobby horse of mine uh, I uh so you know if I get into a PhD program I would love to pursue um and write about um, radical life extension, um, which, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't. There might also be, you know, maybe, you know, depending on what I write, um, maybe I don't, I, that might even relate to antinatalism somehow. Because I mean, there is, um, there might be some antinatalists who are for against procreation, but maybe not against extinction via radical life extension. Um, I mean, there might be a connection there. And um, so, yeah, that'd be quite, a, yeah, I'd be interested to actually know what's the antinatalist consensus of this consensus on the idea of radical life extension. Um, but yeah, so I think that's, um, I'm keen to maybe just move a little bit away from animals. Um, I'll always um, have something to say on the topic because, you know, I'm a co-founder of uh, an animal advocacy nonprofit. But I do want to pursue some other um, some other areas which lend itself to you know maximizing happiness. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, just speaking briefly on the subject of of, of life extension, I, I do think that there's different views amongst antinatalists in regards to that. But one thing that I, when the subject has come up, I mean, the one thing that I wonder about a lot is. So let's say we were able to achieve immortality, you know, would that in turn mean that we would have to take a very strong antinatalist position about the creation of new life? And I kind of think that we would. I mean, if we're, if we're here, if once we're here, we're here for as long as this planet keeps on turning, then with limited resources, you absolutely could not continue to procreate or you'd have to create, continue to procreate in, in very, very, very minimal numbers. Um, and so what, I don't, I'm not even, I'm not even sure how you'd get away with uh, almost a, with not having almost like a, uh, sorry, not utilitarian, like almost a, a fascistic kind of approach to uh, procreation, limiting procreation in that kind of world, because, you know, resources would, would uh, become so scarce. If we're just you know yeah. we just don't die yeah um i think yeah again i think that's an you know that's an empirical claim and i do think there are some empirical objections to um that common objection you know the um you know overpopulation argument um where again if you know overpopulation if, if the technology arises that would allow us to extend life radically um, and overpopulation becomes a concern, it's still, you know, yeah, I mean, there might be, you would probably have to, you might, you might have to um, restrict people, uh, the amount of maybe kids they can have, but I, mean, I think that's probably a superior remedy than a uh, forced death, you know, um, <laughs> Sure. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And um, again, and there's also, who knows, you know, there's, um, you know, I've taken a road trip through the United States and um, 
part of me thinks, you know what, this place can hold a lot more people. I don't. Um, I think um, also technological progress. I think may allow us to, um, you know, extract resources more efficiently. Maybe find new ways of uh, producing the necessary resources where um, some of these concerns um, might no longer be concerns. Okay, interesting. Well, I, I very much look forward to uh, any writing that you do on, on that subject. And, you know, I just want to wish you the best of luck with your PhD pursuits. Um, Ludwig, where can people find you on the internet and how can people best support what you do? Um, I suppose you, um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at um, Ludwig underscore Rahl. And in terms of um, support, um, yeah, uh, I don't know if I write something you can, um, you know, share it and retweet it and, and read it. Um, and um, yeah, you know, I'm, um, I'm, I think I'm maybe not as confident in my views as my writing sometimes suggests, so, you know, people can feel free to push back. And um, I'd like to think, um, um, you know, intellectually humble enough and introspective enough to, um, no, be open to changing my mind on things. Uh, well, Ludwig, I've really enjoyed our time together today. Uh, thank you so much for the important work that you're doing. And thank you so much for being my guest today on the Exploring Antinatalism podcast. It's been a pleasure. Okay, Amanda. And yeah, thank you for the um, thoughtful questions. It was fun. Follow Ludwig Rall on Twitter and find links to his paper, Better Never to Have Been in the Wild, A Case for Weak Wildlife Antinatalism, and other works in the description. Thank you for listening to the Exploring Antinatalism podcast. This has been Amanda Oldfansukanik. You can find me on the YouTube channel, Antinatal Wolf. Keep up with my daily antinatalist news updates at Antinatal News on Twitter. Please follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon.com, RSS Feed, and so many other platforms. Email me at exploringantinatalism at gmail.com. The podcast website, www.exploringantinatalism.com, was designed by the amazing Visions Noirs. Please follow him at www.bionoir.com and also follow him on Instagram. Logo art by the amazing Life Sucks. Subscribe to him on YouTube and check out his merch at www.etsy.com slash shop slash Life Sucks Publishing. Music by the wonderful I Doubt It. Subscribe to him on YouTube and check out our collaborative project along with our friend Evil WV, The Right to No Longer Exist, which includes the podcast, The Right to No Longer Exist, A Right to Die podcast. All the best and bye for now.